This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. And welcome in to another edition of the Bartholomew Town Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Bartholomew. On today's episode, I sit down with Rhode Island Representative Brian Newberry. Brian Newberry is a member of the Rhode Island House of Representatives from the 48th District, encompassing North Smithfield and portions of Burraville in northern Rhode Island. As a Republican who has been in office since 2009, Newberry has had a first-hand look at how the mechanics and procedures of the House can stifle potential legislation that may seem to have broad political will, but never comes before the full body for a vote. The Rhode Island House of Representatives currently has three distinct factions, the Institutionalist Centrist Democrats in command, the Reform Caucus, encompassing mostly progressive Democrats and some reform-oriented centrist Democrats, and the smallest faction, the Republican Party. Forging coalitions within and between these factions is a key element of Rhode Island lawmaking. I sat down with Rep. Newberry at the loft right before he headed into a House session and gained an understanding of how he believes the General Assembly can be improved and what his own future political plans might look like. New episodes of the Bartholomew Town podcast every Tuesday and Friday. You can always head over to BartholomewTown.com or search on Apple Podcasts for each of the dozens of interviews I've conducted with people like Kim Kalunian, Brown University's Wendy Schiller, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, Providence Mayor Jorge Alorza, The Public's Radio's Ian Donis, and many more. In the midst of a monsoon outside of the studio when we recorded this <laughs> from the loft in Providence. Representative Brian Newberry. Wanted to, I originally wanted to have you on because of an op-ed that you had written related to the House rules. Um, this, is, this is a procedural matter that some people might find boring even within political inside baseball, but boy, does it affect everything. Yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not really procedural. It is, but it's, it's a situation where the process drives and determines in many ways the substance. And it's boring to talk about if you don't understand it. But if you really want to understand the way legislatures in general, not just Rhode Island, work, you need to understand the rules. That's true for the elected officials, but it's true for the people outside, too. Right. So what are some of the major – obviously, we've already been through this discussion this year, but it seems like things are moving somewhat in a new direction, at least well, by pressure. Uh, pressure-wise, yeah. I mean, you know, things don't move too fast in a legislative body in general. That's not a bad thing, by the way. Um, oftentimes, things change, but it takes several cycles to change. And I think part of what's going on now is just – Attention is being brought to these issues with the rules with the hope that if it didn't change that much this year, the pressure's out there, the public attention focused on it, and maybe the next time, next election, next Speaker of the House, something like that, there might might be more changes. That's sort of the idea I have anyway. What's sort of the Cliff uh, Cliff's Notes version of what these changes should be here? I mean, it's it, it, there's a ton of power given to the Speaker of the House and his uh, essentially operatives within the chamber, if you will, um, well, not, not even his operatives, actually, if you talk to them. No, you know, you hit the nail on the head. The Cliff's, Note, Cliff's Notes version is difficult. It's, it's difficult to encapsulate this, so I'll try to summarize this as follows. Every legislative body, I'll use, we're an example, but this is true of Congress. It's true of the state legislature of the 49 other states. It would be true of a parliament in another country. Every legislative body has to have rules to determine how it operates. People get elected, you show up, and what do you do, right? It's, you can't have 75 people show up in a room without some kind of organization. So naturally, those people will organize themselves, and inevitably, you will have to elect somebody to hold the gavel, run the show, determine what happens when. 
And so the fundamental issue, we do a lot of things, and there's a lot of rules, but at the end of the day, the key thing is this. Who decides, it doesn't have to be one person, that's really the issue, but who decides what comes to a vote on the floor, and who decides how much time both the people who are voting as well as the public has to read and understand things that are brought to a vote, whether it's an original bill or whether it's a bill that's amended. Because ultimately, what do legislatures do? They, they pass laws, for better or for worse. I mean, I happen to believe personally, my own personal feeling is we should pass a lot less laws and probably remove half the ones we have, but that still requires the legislature to act or not act. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yep. And so where we are now is just a consolidation of power to the Speaker of the House. There's no line-item veto on, on the gubernatorial side. You know, so. I, you know, I support the line-item veto, but that's, that really is independent of the rules discussion. It's a separate, it's a separate issue. Um, that's about power between the House and the Senate and the governor. What I'm talking here is power within the House of Representatives vis-a-vis each member to another member. And you can have the same discussion about the Senate. I don't serve in the Senate. I don't want to interfere in Senate business in case any senators are listening to this. But they have the same issues. They can deal with it in their own way. The, the fundamental problem is this. Our rules, the way they operate, and this, this becomes a very – and this is where it gets really dry. So if I can go – I'll go into it if you want me to. Oh, let's go listeners want to But I'll, I can talk, I'll try, to, try to make it simple. I but, sense they want it. Yeah. <laughs> Our rules ultimately give the speaker the power to determine almost everything that's important. That said, he only has that power because the majority of members are willing to give it to him. You know, we just voted it out. We passed the rules for these two-year sessions. There was some – there was one significant change that didn't go as far as they liked. There was one change made. But at the end of the day, the speaker retains the power uh, to decide what comes to the floor for a vote, the speaker and the speaker alone. Now, there could be a rebellion against that. But as long as you have a slim majority of people that are willing to let them do that, that's what happens. That, that's, that's really the rub. Right. So we're talking about changes to sub-amendment, you know, Time frames, how how long before a secondary vote can occur, these types of maneuvers. We're that- talking about whether a bill gets a substantive up or down vote, period. And, and the thing is, what happens is the discussion gets driven by people's particular policy interests. For example, we were talking off air, and I'm sure you asked me about you know, the, the so-called – and I say so-called reform caucus because there's 19 of them. Uh, some of them are genuinely interested in reform. Uh, some of them are, I want to say Johnny come lately is not in a bad way. Sometimes you, you know, you see things, you try to work it, you realize it's not working, you change your perspective. And there's a few that I would characterize as disgruntled opportunists <laughs> who, who love the way the old system worked as long as it worked for them. But, you know, but I don't, I'm not trying to pick individual people, but that's why I say so-called. There are Democrats that want to reform the system, some for legitimate reasons, some for their own personal reasons. But the bottom line is you have a situation where bills that should come to a vote. And this is what I started to say. It's not about particular bills. It's not about a liberal agenda or a conservative agenda. It's about why is it that legislation that everyone generally agrees is good, uh, and if it came to the floor, would pass with overwhelming margins and probably oftentimes bipartisan support, why does it not get a vote? Right. You know, I mean, that's the fundamental. People look at that and they say, wait, I don't get it. Like, no one's against this, so why didn't it pass? That kind of thing. Right. So what's the next step? Is it just another year of, of essentially lobbying behind the scenes amongst the, the, the chamber? There's, there's part of that. I mean, right now you have Speaker Mattiello. He's been a speaker since 2014. He was just reelected to another two-year term. Uh, he, you know, I was the minority leader for a number of years. I served with him as minority leader when he was majority leader, and then we were speaker. So he and I have had a long relationship working in the chamber. We don't always agree on things, but we get along, and I have you know, a tremendous respect for him, even though I disagree with him sometimes. And I say that because it's not really about him. This issue has nothing to do with the individual in charge. I don't think anyone should have the power that he has right now. But he also, I just know him, he's not one to let that power go. 
So eventually he won't be speaker, probably by his own choice, but whenever it happens. I mean, they, speakers don't last forever. Um, I think people are trying to set this up for the successor, whoever that is, be it two years or four years from now, is going to be forced in order to get the votes to make changes. Does that make sense? Right. I think that, to me, that's what I'm looking at long term. I think a lot of these people are looking at that, too. Interesting. So when you think about the alliance that has kind of been floated between – frankly, Republicans and progressives, which in our case would be sort of the Rhode Island Republican and the Reform Caucus, if you will, yeah, against the, the institutionalists. Not all the Reform Caucus people are progressives. It's a bit of a misnomer. There's mm. a number of progressives in it. There's a number of progressives who are part of Speaker Mattiolo's you know, group of power and people in charge. It, they make individual choices. Right. Yeah. Drawing circles around is, is almost impossible at any level of government. It's really about you know your community's interest if you're doing the job properly, right? Well, also, in Rhode Island, I mean, people, we're not, we are one of the least polarized, partisan polarized legislatures in the country. A lot of the reason for that is because we're, we're one-party state. We are. I'm a Republican, but let's face it, mostly Democrats get elected in this state. And because of that, the Democratic Party, I laugh when they call it the Big Ten. It's so big it encompasses everybody. But um, what that means, though, is that the, the, the polarization is not that bad. And, and, you know, for the most part, people get along. So, People on the outside may look at a newspaper article and even watch a debate. They may see two people look like they're sniping at each other. And those two people might be friends, actually. Right. They can have a civil debate. There's a wink and a nod while they're debating stuff. They, it's serious, but at the same time, it's not personal. So you'll see interesting – in Rhode Island politics, you'll see often see alliances based on people less than policy. It's, it's both, but – Yeah, I've been trying to explore that on this podcast with just bringing out the human you know, position by position or even just what the person's – you know, intangible vibe is and how they would approach a bill. I mean, I know who I like and who I trust in that chamber. It has nothing to do with their political views. Obviously, I want to build coalitions with people I share political views with. But when you're trying to get something done and you want to, you, you, you know, I don't want to say reach across party lines because that's sort of a misnomer. You, you work with people you can work with. And if you agree on something, you work on that. If you don't agree on something else, you don't work on that. Shifting gears just in terms of the Republican Party in Rhode Island right now, do you, are you on board with this? Sort of new direction. It's and again, it's I think sort of is the right way to look at it with with uh, leader Filippi. Sort of this, um, I've heard him described as a chafy libertarian brand of republicanism. Do you feel like that's an accurate description of of where the Republican Party, at least in the General Assembly, is kind of moving? Um, well, a couple couple things. I, I'm not sure that anybody right now wants to be identified as like a you know a chafy brand republicanism. <laughs> I mean, I, I've never met anybody who had a bad word to say about John Chafee, but you know, Lincoln Chafee, I think, got uh, maligned unfairly many times. In fact, I think he was often, I think, substantively, he was often right about things. His way about doing, going about doing things, was off putting and counterproductive. Right. But uh, but to get back to your question, I don't think the problem with the round Republican Party is necessarily philosophical. You're always going to have philosophical debates and disputes. I generally lean more towards a libertarian feel myself. I always have. Um, but, you know, we have members in our caucus who are very much the opposite. We have people who, you know, and, and, but the real issue is the structure of the party and the fact that when you are so, when you are so much of a minority party, it's difficult to recruit people to join you. I, I don't criticize people. Um, I don't really criticize people who join the Democratic Party in the state because they want to accomplish something in the realm of politics and they see that as the only vehicle to achieve it. But it's unhealthy for the state to have a one-party state. A lot of my Democratic colleagues in the Rhode Island State House, if they were in different other states, they would be Republicans. There's no question about it. I mean, the number of Democrats, and I'm telling you, there's a lot of them that voted for both Donald Trump and also, you know, Alan Fung both times, and Republicans for Congress. You'd be amazed. They won't admit it publicly, but I know they do. It's not a majority. Right. I'm not, I don't want to go overboard here, but it's not 
it's, it's more than people would think. Yeah, oh, I'm sure of it as well. I yeah. mean, especially at the leadership. I guess this the term I heard yesterday from uh, Mike Chippendale was institutionalist within the chambers. You know, that's you know preserving yeah, that. that that that's that. Status yeah. quo. Yeah, there's there's a certain amount of that. There's, I mean, I think any any institution is going to have that term institution. I've been called an institutionalist in the sense that I think a lot of things about the House of Representatives uh, function properly, and I think that I think that upsetting norms that are good is a bad thing. I'm, I am not a bomb thrower, and I don't believe in radical revolution. At the same time, I think there's certain things we could do differently and better. I try to be selective about what that is. Right. So you're an institutionalist if you're defending something against change. That doesn't mean that everything deserves to be changed either. Um, $10 billion budget, ostensibly. <laughs> you know, we're, uh, I noticed speak- it was 9.9. Right, yeah. It's not really 10, according <laughs> to the governor, right? Yeah. We're, let's. I mean, we could break that down in a lot of different ways. We're, we're kind of in a lightning mode here. What's, what's your when that comes before you, what what are the first things you're going to look at to ease the pain, if you will? You know, it's such a broad question. Here's, here's the problem. It, when I first ran for office, which was 14 years ago, I think it was about $4 billion budget. I mean, it's got, now a lot of it's federal money. I'm not saying excuses to spending, but it, it's completely out of control. You look at states of similar size like New Hampshire. It's not even close. Like, what are they doing that we're not? You know, But here's the thing about the budget. You can't just go in and say, oh, it's a $10 billion budget. That's too high. Let's pass an $8 billion budget. And the reason for that is a lot of our expenditures are locked in long-term obligations. You know, leases on state property, um, pension commitments, uh, you know, municipal aid to cities and towns that they rely on, they locked in. You can't take the proverbial meat axe to the budget. You literally can't do it. That doesn't mean you can't reduce spending. But we didn't get here overnight. If you're like me and you want to see us reduce the level of state, state government, state expenditure, you need to start reducing it and ratcheting it. I say it's, it ratcheted up. It's got to ratchet down. But the problem is you need willpower to do that. You start doing that. You start making cuts, and those become politically unpopular, particularly with Democratic constituencies, which is why nothing changes in this state. But that, there you go. Right. So you're, there's, no, there's nothing that was announced to the state of the state or in the budget that jumps out at you as, hold on a second here. We really we, – we can't, we can't go here, so to oh, speak. Oh, well, there was a lot of things. I, I – all I heard the governor say was, let's spend money on this, let's spend money on that, let's spend money on this over here without any idea of how to pay for it. What I understand from talking to our fiscal staff people who have dug into it, as of yesterday I was talking to them, they said it's, there's just, it's, it's superficial. Um, my expression is I think she mailed it in. I think last year's budget was mailed in as well. Um, I think there's political reasons for that. I'm not here to you know bash the governor. I, I don't think she's the best governor in the world. I don't think she's the worst governor in the world. But I think on these budget submissions the last couple of years, unlike her first two years where there was good or bad, she was very focused and detailed. They don't, that focus and detail seems to be missing now. That's what I see. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because she's often identified as fiscally conservative. I think that more is related to her her industry than anything, you know, that's, yeah. that it's not uh, really the practice of, of exercising think, government. I don't think she's fiscally, I don't think she's fiscally liberal. I, I, right. I, I think she is a left of center Democrat. Um, what that means is a lot of, that can mean a lot of things. Uh, I, I think the basic problem, again, I, I'm not trying to psycho me. I, I don't think she necessarily expected to be here after 2016. I mean, I, my gut feeling is she probably expected to be part of a Hillary Clinton administration. And when that – whoever you support in that election, I think everyone was surprised at the results. So I, who knows? I, I think that's a lot of it because her focus – I served on, there when she was treasurer too. And she was very focused as treasurer. Um, and then she was very focused her first two years as governor. That focus seems to be um, 
missing, but I don't know. I, you know, there's also who knows what the relationships are between her and the Democratic leadership. I don't like to get involved in fights between Democrats, so I'll leave it at that. Yeah, the the scene behind the scene. I mean, the you know, the I guess the Wizard of Oz, if you will, if it's out there, what's that? What does that machine think about what, where we're at right now as a state? That's a reasonable question. Um, last few minutes here, your own personal ambitions. You seem to enjoy being in the house. I mean, it's always the the it's way too early to, to talk about 2022, that's for sure. But do you see yourself as somebody who's going to look for statewide office someday? Uh, no, uh, you never say never to anything, but it's very practical. Um, I believe strongly in a part-time legislature. It's what we have. Uh, I am a, I'm a partner in a law firm. I, am a, I have a litigation practice. Um, I'm busy. Um, I cannot afford to quit my job. <laughs> uh, I don't want to go bankrupt. I don't want to go. I don't want to get divorced. You know what I mean? I got I got one kid graduating college, one kid's a freshman, another one in high school. Yeah. So the fifteen thousand wouldn't wouldn't cut it for you then from being in the the no, assembly. No, what I'm saying, but running for statewide office, no matter who you are, is really a full time job just to run. Yeah. And um, you know, I, it's going to sound terrible. Some people, I, it doesn't pay that much. Like if you look, I, I don't know what the salary is for the governor. It's obviously not poverty level. I'm not trying to say sympathize, but it's not like it's the best paying job in the universe. Um, so to answer your question is, it's not that I would have no interest in running for statewide office or, or Congress or something like that. I literally can't. I can't afford to. My wife doesn't want me to. I don't want to put the time into it. I've got other things I enjoy doing. That said, I enjoy serving in the, the House of Representatives, so we'll see how long I do that for. But I don't see me, I don't see me running for higher office, no. Not, not anytime, anytime soon, anyway. What about developing – I know we kind of alluded to this earlier just in terms of expanding the Republican Party in Rhode Island – what about developing younger candidates and and building some kind of lineage? Uh, well, you know, I was I was minority leader for six years, and for the first um, eight years I was in office, I was I did a lot of that. I would teach classes. I still help candidates out informally, um, but you know, I've done a lot of that. Yeah. It gets tiring. I, I have a lot of other interests in life, so I do what I can. Um, other people need to step up, and some are. I'm not being critical, maybe I'm saying, but there's a cycle to these things. You can't you can't do that stuff forever. What else are you into? What other besides politics and? Oh, well, there's a lot of things. I, like to, I always call I always call politics. I joke about it, but it's it's my full time hobby. Yeah. It won't last forever. There's a lot of things in life I enjoy that I don't have time to do right now. <laughs> you know what I'm so you know, I'd like yeah. to write. That's one. Thing. I'd love to write books. I'd, I'd, a lot of things I like to write do. books. I'd like to. Oh, I'd like, you'd I would like, like to. Yeah, yeah I like to. Yeah. I enjoy writing. I'd like to try writing a novel someday. I mean, who knows? But yep. you know, I mean. Again, there's cycles in life. There's time. Yes. I'm not going to be a politician forever. Nobody should be. I don't know when it's going to end, but I can tell you that I won't be in the House of Representatives in 20 years either. Yeah, I'm saying right. I that. So interesting. Um, my last question: uh, Media in Rhode Island is shrinking, although there's some serious players on an individual basis. You know, a lot of them have been on this program, and there's there's others out there who um, hopefully will be. Do you feel like? you're able to communicate to your constituents and to the state as a whole through the media well and through your own channels? Well, communicating with constituents in a state like Rhode Island is a lot easier than it was 20 years because the internet. I mean, I, I have a heavy presence on uh, Facebook and Twitter. Twitter is – I don't have a lot of use for Twitter, but I do use it. Um, Facebook, I, I have a rep page. I put bulletins out. I also have an email list of constituents that I've built up over the years of a couple thousand people. You know, I don't know how many of them read it, but a lot of them do. I sent, I just sent one out this past weekend. I sent updates as to what's going on. So talking, and also it's you know these are door to door campaigns, and it's my town, well, my town plus part of the neighboring town. Yeah, so, Bur- parts parts of Burrowville and North Smithfield. It's all in North Smithfield and a part of Burrowville. And I've been in office for a while, so I, I really feel like I, I know. Obviously, I'm not saying I know everybody, and everybody knows me, but I try to. And people, you know, um, 
you know, as far as the statewide media, it, it's shrinking. The pro journalism doesn't have so much press. There's some top-notch reporters that cover the state house. There's just not a lot of them. Right. You know, there's a handful that are really good, but and they do the best they can. But uh, that that's an issue. But you know, it's media is a constantly changing industry. So. Broadcasts like this are a good way to get things out. This didn't exist 15 years ago. You know what I mean? Yeah, so, but yeah. a year ago it didn't. Yeah, this particular well, one. Particular, right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Yeah. No, I know what you mean. Yeah. Absolutely, the long form. Um, bonus question: I should have asked you just on the power plant. It seems like that's in retreat right now. And Vernagee's, I don't know what the actual status is. It seems like they're walking back from the application process. Yeah, if you will. I, actually, I, I don't. I don't know where that stands at the moment. Um, it's it's going to sound it's it's obviously of concern to my constituents, but it's not actually in my district, if that makes sense. Yes, and yep. I don't live in Boroughville, so I've always sort of deferred on that issue to the borough. Whatever the Boroughville town council and their representatives would want, they were on the ground. I'd back them, and that was a bipartisan thing. You know, last session we had two de- we had a Democratic rep, a Democratic senator in Boroughville, we had a Republican council, um, but they were all generally in agreement on the issues, despite whatever other issue. And, and so whatever they wanted, I always supported it. That was my attitude about it. You know, right. constituents don't want it, I can tell you that. Yeah, oh, no, there's no question about it. I just driving around up there, I mean, there's signs everywhere, civilian signs. I mean, it's pretty obvious that it's not something people want to have. So, um, Representative Brian Newberry, thanks so much for making your Bartholomew Town debut here for the, the people. That was enjoyable. And thank you for joining us on another edition of the Bartholomew Town Podcast. I'll be back on Tuesday with a brand new episode. Be sure to follow on Instagram at Bartholomew Town Podcast. Until next time, I'm Bill Bartholomew. We'll talk soon. Discover the dozens of conversations I've had on the Bartholomew Town Podcast with Rhode Island politicians, media members, artists, and beyond at BartholomewTown.com, RIPodcast.com, or on Apple Podcasts.